13 this morning. Last week we finished, uh, obviously, Matthew 13, um, uh, Rank County Public High School Education. Uh, the numbers fall in order. Uh, there was a series, seven, seven parables right in a row. Boom, 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 boom. And then we shift. It's almost like it's just a really hard shift for Matthew to go from Jesus teaching all these parables um, uh, right on the heels of chapter 12 where he taught no parables, but he ran at the Pharisees for two of their biggest issues of Sabbath and demonic activity. So Jesus goes from that in 12 to like a hard shift into parables teaching, and then now we're going to kind of do another hard shift, it feels like, in chapter 14. Um, and it's such a hard shift that, take this into account, chapter 14 is not in chronological order. Uh, if we follow the other Gospels, this, what happens in chapter 14, occurs earlier in Jesus' ministry. So Matthew, thanks bro, is not keeping to a chronological time zone or a timeline. He's keeping to a different kind of timeline. He is building a narrative. He is building a story. So we have kind of shown t Jesus the teacher, and then he did a bunch of miracles, and then he had a lot of wisdom, and then he's poking his finger in the face, the noses of the Pharisees, uh, and then more parables and miracles, and then we're going to have this weird, almost parenthetical story that Matthew slides in, and uh, if you'll take a look, I have this map up here. It says, I don't, don't ask why, it says Lake Galilee. It's the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and that's not the indoor moon uh, from Star Wars fame. That is actually a city in, 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 in Israel. Um, it's where the witch of Endor lived uh, in the Old Testament. Um, anyway, just over where it says lake, uh, kind of that northeast region there is where they believe uh, Jesus was gonna, is going to feed the 5,000. It's going to be part of chapter 14 today. And from where, kind of that point of where the lake, the L, comes down in that map, those of you who are listening on the podcast, I apologize, uh, I'm pointing to a map. Uh, uh, Jesus is going to actually make that trek when he walks on water, spoiler alert, uh, uh, he's going to walk essentially across that cap, uh, across the water there. So it's very interesting. That's what I'm talking about, Jerry. Not on time. It's close. Hey, we'll give you, it's, it's close enough for me. Um, so Jesus tells all these parables, and he kind of begins a, a subtle retreat into these northern areas around the Sea of Galilee where it's not a lot of population. So let's begin reading at verse 1. And again, this is going to feel like a hard shift from chapter 12 and chapter 13. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch uh, heard the news about Jesus. Now, uh, we've talked about this before, but there are like, three or four different Herods over the course of 70 or 80 years in Israel. It's, it's a family title. And Herod uh, the Great is Herod the Tetrarch's daddy. Herod the Great was the one we met back in the early part of Matthew that tried to kill all the babies in Bethlehem and, um, and convince the wise men that they should come and narc out where Jesus is. He has died, and he left his territory to his children to one daughter and to three sons, Herod, Herod, and Philip, and Salome, or Salmone, or something like that. Salmon. It's Salmon. It's, and yes, because she liked pink, right? Because that's him. All right. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus. So something about 
in the storyline that Matthew's writing was like, it's about this time that that this ruling regent, he's not the king per se, but he is kind of the king. Does that make sense? Kind of co-regent with Rome. He's trying to figure out life. Um, he's a political schmoozer. Uh, sharp guy by historical accounts, but he's definitely politically savvy. And he said to his servant, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. All right, that's the story about Herod the Tetrarch. And Matthew said, oh, yeah, I didn't tell y'all that John died. (laughs) Like, plot twist, right? Because just a few chapters ago, uh, John the Baptist was in prison and had sent word to Jesus, hey, are you, are you the guy? I thought you were the guy, but I'm not sure anymore. And Jesus sent back an encouraging message and said, hey, I'm the man. Hey, chill out. And then Matthew's like, and John died. And everyone goes, you know, put your pearls on so you can clutch them. <gasps> what? That's an important detail. He's like, okay, okay. Time out. Let me tell you the story. Verse 3. When Herod had John arrested, he bound him and he put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother, Philip. So Herod, the Tetrarch, had a brother named Philip. And Philip died. Okay, I want you to understand. Philip died under curious circumstances. You follow what I'm saying? And, um, and so... He marries his brother's wife. Uh, And John, verse 4, had been saying, it's not lawful for you to have her. So apparently there was the local gossip and the scoop. John the Baptist had more information than we did. And he was like, you can't marry your brother's sister. You can't do that. You can't do that. You... I think he thought he knocked him, she had knocked him off or his brother had knocked him off so he could marry his wife. Either which way, there was some real Jerry Springer type stuff going on here, you know. It like a date gone it, it's yeah, yeah. Yeah, one of those murder mysteries. Forensic files like they looked like a normal family. No, they didn't. Um, whenever someone starts a murder mystery that way they look like a normal family, I'm like, "Oh, someone's dying." No one's normal. Um, verse 5. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. So Herod, in this political conundrum, he wanted to see this, like, would you just shut up about the whole marriage thing? I want you to stop talking about that. You, you have a beard. I mean, you look like John the Baptist to me. So we're gonna hear, You're John the Baptist today. And he's like, would you just shut up about that? And John's like, no, I won't shut up. I will speak the truth. I will not, I will not, not speak the truth. Um, and guess who got really offended at that? Herod's new wife, which tells me that she's part of uh, the suspicious, suspicious activity under which her husband previously, her previous husband, had died. Do what? It is. It is. It, and this is all in the Bible. Can you believe that? Um, but Herod wanted to put him to death, but he feared the crowd. So they thought John the Baptist is the prophet. They're like, basically, this is Elijah in their own day and era. And so they were afraid uh, of the, the politicians were afraid of the people, of what will the people do? It's the same reason why Jesus kind of got some protection in Jerusalem when he would preach and the Pharisees wanted to kill him. Well, the people reviewed Jesus as a prophet. And so they had to walk this weird political line. That's where the king is. 
Now when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Now, if you want to have a real gross yuck moment, um, this daughter, his niece, functionally, um, is from where, anywhere between the ages of 12 and 17. Now, um, it, is a, it is a proven fact in human development that women today um, are far more sexually awakened than they ever have been in human history, right? There are records of, uh, of especially in certain sections of uh, New York and Los Angeles, heavily urbanized, where young girls as young as five and six are becoming women, if you follow what I'm saying, okay? Heavily sexualized cultures tend to develop, to trigger development in, in young ladies very, very early on. But this wasn't that kind of culture yet. So between 12 and 17, she looked like a young, and she was taught by her mother to do a very provocative kind of dance. And she went in in front of her uncle, stepdad, and, and did this dance. And he was lit. Uh, other gospels tell us they were, they were fairly intoxicated. So he was, he was very drunk, and this, uh, this child of his that he was supposed to steward comes in and does a provocative dance set up by his wife. Is this a broken culture or what? Well, they look like a normal family, right? Yeah, this is total normal behavior. No, no. So we have perhaps some even hints at pedophilia here in Herod the Tetrarch. And uh, he is so lit and so intoxicated and so enamored uh, and provoked in this moment, uh, he promised, verse 7, with an oath to give her whatever she asked. And having been prompted by her mother, doesn't this sound like a setup? Having been prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. See, uh, the wife, Herodias, didn't like John's rhetoric either. She didn't like truth being spoken to her, especially since she is the regent queen, so to speak, the regent ruler. And, uh, and so, verse 9, although he was grieved, the king commanded it because he had given his oath and because of his dinner guest. She challenged his pride. This, this woman was an excellent manipulator of the circumstances. And so he goes and he has, has John the Baptist beheaded. Um, and it's not important that I get too graphic, but this is not like a medieval uh, beheading or like a guillotine setup um, of the French Revolution days. This was not a clean, this was a sawing kind of behavior. And so what they brought to the king on a platter that he presented to this daughter was a mess of matted humanity. This is grotesque, right? So if you ever watch any of these like Jesus films or uh, made-for-TV stuff and they show this clean head psh, cut off, it's not what, mm -mm, it's terrible. This was designed to be as brutal as she could orchestrate it to be. This was brutal, okay? Um, by the way, this is, even in Islamic culture today, like I, 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 I have been to a place um, that the Saudis call Chop Chop Square. It's where they execute their criminals. Now, criminal in Saudi culture is not what we would call a criminal here. Um, but 
even in Saudi culture, even when you're condemned to die, they will take you to the middle of the square and they will, with one chop, chop your head off and then sew, put it in a bag and sew that bag to your clothes. Okay? Even in Islamic culture, you do not separate the head from the body. In Jewish culture, it is the greatest crime against a person's dignity to not allow them to be buried, especially not together. And one, one, it is a huge Jewish faux pas, and you don't do that. And Herod was like, I'm going to break all the social norms. So this was a messy, this was as, as bad and brutal and miserable as you can poss- possibly imagine. Um, there is not even a modern-day equivalent of what I can think of of how, how, how this would appear in our culture today. But verse 9, he was grieved. The king commanded it because of the oath. He's conflicted. He was scared of the people, but he was also uh, scared of the, the, the dinner guest, his loyal Roman buddies. And he sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter, and he gave it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. Uh, can you imagine what a 13-year-old girl does with a bloody skull? Like, mom, growth. Like, I don't know what they did with this. Uh, later on in about the 13th, 14th century, the Catholic Church claims to have had the head of John the Baptist, and you could pay money to go look at the head of John the Baptist and absolve your family and friends of their sins if you prayed to the head of John the Baptist. It's doubtful that was the case, that it was the actual head. Um, And his head was brought on a platter. Verse 12, his disciples, that is John's disciples, came and took away the body and buried it. So even they were like, we can't let this injustice stand. So they buried the body without his head. And they tried to honor him as best they could. And they went and they reported this to Jesus. Okay, go back to verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch had heard the news about Jesus and and, and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. So we come back full circle. Herod has killed John the Baptist. He's long since been buried. Jesus has already heard about this, but this sets the tone. He's hearing about Jesus doing all these wonderful teachings, and he goes, "Uh uh-oh. John's come back from the dead to get me. So would we say that Herod is a little bit suspicious? Got a couple superstitions in the back of his head? Yeah, this will play out later on as well. Now, uh, it's important to notate uh, that where we are north of the Sea of Galilee, just a little further north, just about the top of where that map is on the screen, uh, there is a city called Caesarea Philippi. And it is in is the foothill area of a place called Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon, we'll get there momentarily in Matthew, is where the transfiguration of Jesus will occur. All right? It is also where the rabbis believe that the sons of God in Genesis 6, the Nephilim, if you ever heard of those, uh, came down and had relations with the daughters of men and where the first demon-human hybrids came from that developed into what we call the giants, of whom Goliath was the last one. A lot of spiritual weird juju stuff going on north of the Sea of Galilee. All right? I'll walk through those more when we get there, but there's some weird stuff going on. The reason I bring that out this morning is this fact. On this northern side of the Lake of Galilee, there's a lot of Roman superstition that is follow-on from ancient religions of that area. 
and they believed in a particular Baal or God, little g God, and his function was to bring the harvest. His function was to bring the storms and to bring the rain and therefore bring the harvest up from the ground. All right? Now, put that in your little pocket, gentlemen. We're going to pull that out in a minute, and you're going to see perhaps something bigger than, than you've seen before here in Matthew chapter 14. So when Jesus heard about John, okay, so he's heard about it. Uh, this, is, this has happened in the past, but he's now getting word. And he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. Uh, so Jesus, he takes one on the chin. And he's like, all right, guys, 12 disciples, come in. We got to take a knee. This is a bad, this is a bad day. Um, even Jesus knew when to step back. Um, there is this sense that everyone was always around Jesus, and that was true most of the time, but Jesus got alone by himself. Uh, I, I would probably think this is true for you ladies, but men, as you age, as you grow, if you're going to maintain any sense of sanity in your home and love your wife the way they ought to be loved and take care of your kids and future grandkids or grandkids if you got them, you're going to have to find a place to get along with Jesus and get your head straight. Because there's going to be some opportunities the world's going to afford you that's going to blend your brain. And Jesus just found out his best friend, his cousin, and what he himself just a few chapters ago said is the greatest preacher that has ever been born. That's pretty good. That's a pretty good performance review, right? And he's just been killed. And how was he killed? Was he killed in a car wreck? Was it an accident? Did he die of natural causes? No. He was brutally, brutally murdered by some very angry people that had lots of earthly power. So he pulls himself away. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. So he gets on the boat, and he kind of does this little loopy arc around the very tip there of the uh, Sea of Galilee. And everyone's like, oh, we know where he's going. Because they can see it. You can see from one side of the sea. You've got, it's like going to the reservoir, like on a good clear day. Like He's going right there. So they run around to catch Jesus. And he's like, guys, please give me five minutes. Um, but verse 14, Jesus went ashore and he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them and he healed their sick. This goes back to the root of who God is as the creator of the world. He knows how it's supposed to be. He knows how the world is supposed to work. But here they are in these large groups. They're, they're broken. They're emotionally broken, physically broken, spiritually broken. And he gets out and he's like, I can help. I can help. And he just starts healing them. And he starts loving on them and taking care of them. And he is absolutely emotionally, spiritually, and physically exhausted. But he keeps moving. When it was evening, so you can think um, not quite sundown, right? So it's it's like 4, 4.30, uh, probably around that time, and he, we, we got to get dinner together. we gotta, we got to send these people aside. And so he said, so the disciples came to Jesus and said, this place is desolate and the hour is already late. Now, desolate does not mean it was a, it was a sandy desert, okay? What it means was, we're so far out, Dollar General ain't got here yet. Okay? We're, we're 30 minutes past Leesburg, and there's nothing out here. 
There's no stores. There's nothing like that. Those of you who uh, are psychopaths with your children and their sports, and you've been to these little baseball or soccer tournaments out in the middle of nowhere, and you turn and there's one Mexican restaurant and 6,000 people that want to eat there. Y'all have been there before? Or you pulled in after a late Friday night uh, football game and there's one Wendy's and six school buses just pulled up? <laughs> like, that, that's kind of the vibe you should feel like. These people, they don't have the resources to support the amount of people with the food in the area, okay? So they're not, they're not in the desert, you know, they're, it's just out there. That's why Jesus went there, and so they followed him. Like, this is their fault. And, uh, and he says, this place is desolate, and the hour is already late. Send the crowds away that they may go into villages and buy food for themselves. Now, this is, this is not in Matthew, but if you read in the story of uh, other Gospels, Jesus actually turns to the, to the disciple Andrew and says, you, hey, is Andrew? either Philip or Andrew, either which way. He turns to one of his disciples who is from that area and says, what, we, what should we do? I think he's picking on him. He's like, you know what's out here. You fix this problem. Now, have they seen Jesus do miracles? Yes. Has he sent them out with the authority to cast out demons and heal people? Yes, he did that a couple chapters ago. Have they seen him teach and heal people? Do they have the capacity and bandwidth to do what Jesus is about to ask them to do? Yes! Why don't they do it? Let's, let's take away fear. I think, <laughs> I think that's exactly, I think they're exhausted too because they're focusing on Jesus' ministry. If Jesus is exhausted, how do you think the, the, gopher, the gopher guys are, right? I think Jesus pulled them aside for a reason, not just for him, but for their well-being. Take note of this. As you lead your families, as you lead your business organizations, you need to take note of that for your people. Sometimes you need to shut the door and quit making money for a minute and say, hey, look, if we don't get this right, like, we're going to be broke. We're going to be messed up. So as a, if you're leading people, Take, take note of that. But yeah, he turns to them and says, all right, so you're going to fix this. And uh, send the crowds away, and they may go into the village and buy food for themselves. And Jesus said, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to Jesus, we, are only, we, we here have, have here only five loaves and two fish. Okay? So we got, we got enough to make a couple tuna fish sandwiches, Jesus. I mean, we don't even have Duke's mayonnaise. We're going to have to use this Hellman's garbage. Uh, uh, worse, Miracle Whip, right? Gross. Those of you are Miracle Whip people. Um, that is not an endorsement, uh, but, it, but it is a hatred of Miracle Whip. Um, we only have here five loaves and two fish. And Jesus said, bring them here to me. I, I want you to hear this. It's not in the text, but I guarantee you Jesus said something like this. <sighs> Fine. Bring them to me. He, they, it was in their hands. They, they came to Jesus and said, here, we have this. And Jesus like, okay. God has granted to you, each of you, unique giftings. Okay? Some of you in this room have skill sets so far beyond my understanding. 
I can't, I can't even breathe in your space sometimes. Like when I start thinking about the stuff that y'all know and that y'all do, it's just like, I get a little nervous. Some of y'all have, have gifts with your hands that you work with. This, these hands that I have were made to hold a leather-bound Bible, folks. Okay, I've tried trades. I've tried to fix stuff. It's just not smart for me to do so. I do not know how to fix things. I want to. I, want the, I, want, I have desire to do these things. But it's best that I just call one of you and go, this is broken. <laughs> Can I pay you to come fix it? Before you make it right. worse. Yes, I will make it worse. It's coming. I'm terrible at this, okay? There are, there are places in your life where God has specifically equipped and geared you and said, here, I'm good. if you will just take this that I've given you, I'm going to make this multiply, and I'm going to bless people, and I'm going to let you bless them with my name if you'll just use them, okay? Because apparently, I tell you, we stack all of us up next to each other. Some of us, me near the bottom, like, you can't do anything. We're sorry. If there's a zombie apocalypse, I hope there's a Bible church somewhere I can start. <laughs> like, I'm like, oh, okay, guys, what am I going to do? Um, um, and they, they didn't have the, the confidence. I didn't think they, I don't think they had the emotional courage at that point. They were tired. And maybe a little bit of scared. It was a lot of people. I've been around hungry people before. I've been around my kids that were hungry. I'm like, I don't, eh. um, And he says, bring them here to me. And ordering the people to sit down on the grass, proof positive we're not in the desert, right? Sit on the grass. He took five loaves and two fish and looking towards heaven, the typical Jewish way to pray. We, how we got here is a matter of, of, uh, of American and um, European Protestant thinking, right? Um, the, this is not how the ancients prayed. They didn't bow their head. They didn't close their eyes. They didn't cross their hands. This is a sign, if you saw someone like this, right? This is a universal prayer sign for us in the South. Uh, but it's a sign of submission and humility. And I'm not saying that that's not a good position to be in when you're talking to the Almighty. But that is not how the Jews prayed. When the Jews prayed, they faced the, the, the sky, they opened their arms, and they looked with anticipation. I need something, and you're up there. I am broken. Can you fix me? So this is, this is not abnormal. Matthew's just telling us how Jesus did it. And uh, he blessed, it says here, he blessed the food, and he began to break the loaves, and he gave them to, to the disciples, and the disciples then gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. Now, that's an interesting statement to me. We are living in a, in a time zone uh, when the Roman government came in, and they taxed the garbage out of people. You couldn't pay, they'd take your kids or your wife or your livestock, maybe in that order. Okay? When was the last time you think these people ate a meal and sat back and rubbed their belly and went, mm, that's good? When's the last time you think these people were satisfied after lunch? I bet it's been a minute. I like that phrase that Matthew adds in there. They, they ate and were satisfied. Jesus didn't just give them enough. He gave them more than enough. He gave them enough, enough for them to be satisfied with their meal to the point where they were like, all right, we're not, we can't eat anymore. And they, they, the disciples, picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. Now, it's not apparent in the English, but in the Greek it is. Uh, 12 basketfuls. This is like the bread basket they bring you at, at Amerigo's, right? Or uh, O'Charlie's or the, wherever the free bread place is. 
Oh, Charlie's used to be jam up. Y'all remember that? <laughs> God bless them. They have, they have not kept up with the times. Um, but it's a small basket, okay? Now, in other gospels, Jesus is going to feed more people later, and he fills up seven baskets. That word baskets in the Greek means like large hamper basket. But in this case, they fill up 12 hand baskets. Now, why do you think that's an interesting number to come up with? There were 12 disciples. You think Jesus was proving a point? Like, it was, they brought him a basket, and he gave them back each a basket full of food, right? You see, you see what Jesus is doing? You had the power to do this all along. You, you, I have, I've already authorized you to go out and help, heal, teach, and preach. And you keep looking away, and you keep looking for me to do all this stuff, I'm not going to be here all the time. You need to start figuring this stuff out. All right. Go back in your Bibles to 2 Kings in the Old Testament, chapter 4. Now, the reason why we're going to go back there is because I think it's very interesting uh, to take note of why Jesus did this miracle right now. Um, one of the situations that he was dealing with, uh, Jesus was, was trying to demonstrate he was of prophetic value, like Old Testament prophetic value, okay? Second uh, Kings chapter 4, verse 42. Now, this is Elisha. Elisha is the understudy of the quintessential Jewish prophet. I mean, if I said Babe Ruth and Hank Aaron, you would know those are the home run kings, right? We're not counting, we're not counting Barry Bonds, hashtag asterisk. Hashtag steroids. We're not worried with him. But if I said those two names, you go, oh, those are the home run kings. Those are the sultans of SWAT, right? Um, what are the other ones? Come on, Sandlot people. The, the colossal of crash. Anyway, uh, Jesus is mimicking the miracles of Old Testament prophets. You're saying, hold on. There's an Old Testament prophet that was feeding multiple people? Absolutely. Second Kings chapter... 4, verse 42. So there's a man that came from Baal Shalisha. That's a, that's a name if you want to call your kid that. And brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And he said, give them to the people that they may eat. And his attendant said, what will I set this before a hundred men? And he said, give them to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some Left over. Interesting. So he said it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. They had enough food here, uh, give or take, for about 20 people. When I say loaves of bread, we're thinking like small, like, like small, almost rolls, right? Not like big loaves of bread. He brought enough food for 20 people, but fed 100. What did Jesus do? He had enough... He had enough food for one person and fed 5,000 and had left over. What was the point Jesus was making? I am like the prophets of old. However, comma, what? I'm so much bigger and better. That was an interesting point. We cannot miss that in this story. The Jews would have picked up on this. Like they're sitting there going, oh, you remember that one time Elisha fed all the people? Five times? God's like, I'm going to do that exponentially. Nevertheless, 
they pick up the seven or the 12 full baskets, hand baskets. So each of them has their own now basket of food they can eat for later. Now, immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. The reason why he did this, other gospels tell us that in that very moment, the, the people's like, we're going to make you king. You're doing this really great stuff for us. We're going to make you king. And Jesus is like, ah, nope, no, you're not. So he sent the disciples away. He broke up the crowds somehow and sent them away. And uh, it's getting dark, so they need to go home anyway. And after he'd sent the crowds away in verse 23, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. So this timeline, we're now at about midnight. So Jesus has gone all day working, healing, helping, feeding, cleaning up after the dinner on the grounds, literally. And now it's about midnight. And he goes up on top of the mountain, and it's very important. Mountains and prayer are a theme that go from almost the very beginning of the book of, of Scripture all the way to the end. Great things happen with God on mountains. Okay? And Jesus goes on top. It's very symbolic. Jesus goes on top of a mountain. And where he's sitting on top of the mountain, guess what he has a beautiful view of? The Sea of Galilee. So he puts his disciples out in the boat, and they start going. And guess what Jesus can see? The boat. And how far can he see it? All the way. He knows everything that's fixing to happen to them. Pay attention to this fact. Verse 3, after he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, and being battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Up there at the very top where you see the river comes into the Sea of Galilee, you see there's kind of the topography there. There's a whole bunch of mountains. In the evening, the air comes rushing off. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. comes rushing off the top of the mountains and creates this funnel effect, and it just sends absolute anarchy out on the sea. But Jesus sent them out there, so they're out there. They'd already watched Jesus put this one storm to bed, and they're out there thinking, okay, well, Jesus sent us out there. But they are rowing and rowing. They've been rowing for about three or four or five hours at this point. Uh, over in this region, I've been there. <laughs> at 5 a.m., the sun is wide open. Now, here it comes, big orange ball. 5 a.m., it's there. Jesus has spent the better part of the last four hours on the mountain praying and watching his disciples. Check this out. Verse 25. And at about the fourth watch of the night, that is about between 3 and 6 a.m., so it is twilight. There's enough light to get you in trouble. It's enough light to play tricks on your eyes. And I don't know why Jesus did what he's about to do, uh, but he did it. Maybe it was just, he's like, I don't want to walk on the mountains today. I'm just going to take a shortcut through the Sea of Galilee. Uh, by the way, there is a tourist spot in Israel. It's about this area. Um, they have built a pier at surface level of the water. So if you pay your touristy fee, you can go out and get pictures of you standing on the Sea of Galilee because uh, the pier is beneath the water. You can't see it. But So you can go walk on the water like Jesus. I want to do that. Go do it. All right? I should. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be so much fun. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. Now, another gospel records that Jesus had intended to pass them by, but didn't. Uh, Matthew does not record that fact because Matthew likes to see Jesus, and 
Maybe Matthew's never been approached in Walmart after he's about a very long day at work. Go, hey, how are you doing? I don't want to talk to you right now at Walmart. I'm getting my groceries. I'm going to the house. Jesus perhaps was just like, I don't want to talk to these people. He wasn't going to stop. But they recognize him. He's walking past them. They're taking the closest route. He's taking the closest route. They're battling against the waves, and Jesus is walking on them. Now, imagine that, okay? So we don't have calm water. The waves are beating the ship to death. And what is Jesus? He's just kind of walking up, walking down. And if they're, they're out there looking, and they kind of can see. So this character that they see kind of in the twilight. Are we seeing what we think we're saying? He kind of appears and then disappears. And it looks like he's floating on the water. Well, this, this is weird. Um, the disciples saw him walking on the sea. They were terrified. And they said, it is a ghost. Hey, that is a credible guess when you're out there on the water. They had no frame of reference to work with this. And so I don't, I don't blame them at all. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. I love that. I love that. I love that. Jesus speaks to the moment. And he's like, of all the things, don't be afraid. Uh, when crisis hits, I have coached myself to say these words. Do not react in fear. And I say that to myself about a thousand times when something bad happens. Now, why do I say that to myself? Because that's how I want to respond. My heart is wanting to freak out. And I have to say to myself, do not respond in fear. Do not react in fear. Do not respond in fear. Because Jesus never allows us to respond in fear when we're walking in the Spirit. Uh, and Peter said to him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. I think there's a lot of trust if you think it's a ghost. And he goes, if that's you, tell me to come. Now, if Jesus had any shenanigans in his heart, he's like, yeah, bro, come on out. <laughs> right to the bottom. Uh, but he's like, all right, come on out, Peter. Um, and so Peter got out of the boat, and he walked on the water, and he came towards Jesus. I've heard 400 million sermons, most of them bad, on this very subject, right? I've heard plenty of them of this titled, Get Out of the Boat, right? If, you, if Jesus is out there, that's where you ought to be. Hey, sometimes Jesus is somewhere, and you just need to be where he puts you in the first place, right? Just stay in the boat, Peter. Yeah, this will be fun. Hey, hey, get your iPhones out. Um, this is going to be hilarious. This is going to be awesome on YouTube. Um, now, remember what I told you a minute ago about the locals' belief in their God of the rain and the storm and the harvest? One of the preeminent themes that they had was that this God of theirs rode on the waves and rode on the clouds. And Jesus picks this moment after he's fed the 5,000 up in this region to walk on water. I think this is really cool. He is demonstrating that who he is is bigger, higher, and greater than the reigning, ruling deity of the moment of this region. And I guarantee you the disciples knew about this local lore. As much as you know about Zeus and the Greek gods, because we've been raised in Greek mythology and all throughout our, our subculture of reading and mythos, they understood who this, they, Jesus is the wave rider. Jesus is the cloud rider. And so that's what he did. So he told him to get out, but seeing the wind, Peter became frightened and began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him, and said, you of little faith, why do you doubt? That's, I think that's a pretty hard, pretty hard statement. Um, but I think it's something that 
I don't, I don't know how to take this to heart. Um, have you ever been going through a hard season and you kind of felt like this condemnation, like I should be believing through this, but I'm not? Uh, whatever's happening here, Jesus looks at Peter and goes, bro, you've, you've seen it all. If you, having seen it all, still can't keep your eyes on the ball and keep following me, how are these poor people ever going to get it? We'll come back to this region in a couple of weeks to Mount Hermon, and Peter's going to have an epiphany. This is going to be recycled. This storyline is going to be recycled again in a couple of chapters. And when they got in the boat, the wind stopped. Now, Jesus, I'm going to guess, is dry as a bone. Because if he can walk on water, he's like, I'm not getting my sandals wet today. Okay, because nothing worse than wet sandals and socks, right, if you have those. I got my, I got my special socks on today, if you can see those. I'll see those right there. Uh-huh. Um, but Peter, how does he look? He's drenched head to toe. And he's kind of pats him on the back. He's like, all right, go get him some new underwear. Uh yeah, you're like, I ain't wearing my underwear. Um, when they got him in the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped Jesus, saying, you are certainly God's son. Not when he fed 5,000. Not when he cast out a legion of demons. Not when he raised people from the dead. Not when, at this moment is the moment. Why does Matthew add that in? Because they realized God just showed up. Before he's this miracle worker, but now they're, they're st- oh, we're starting to clue in. The gods of this region are underneath this guy, which means that he is a higher god than they. And their understanding of Jesus is starting to solidify right here, and they begin to worship Jesus. Point of, point of note, Jesus doesn't stop them. When they got in the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. A different phrase altogether than what he's been using of himself. He's been calling himself what? The son of man. And they said, no, you are God's son. You are it. Uh, Which, by the way, is a direct pullover from Psalm 2, where God says, I have called this one my beloved. He is the anointed one. Anyway, we don't have time for that. When they crossed over, they came to the land of, of Gennesaret, which is kind of on the east coast where that river comes on the east side. It's just below that area. Uh, they traveled there, and when, they, when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word into all the surrounding district, and they brought to him all who were sick. And they begged, they implored, pleaded, as the, the connotation to Jesus, that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touched it were cured. Uh, we'll finish with this idea. I, I am a refined, trained theologian. I have nine years of upper-level Bible college seminary training. I came out of seminary and I knew how church was supposed to be done. And then I I got sent to a little backwoods church uh, in Yazoo City that I loved dearly. I I did many a revival in Swollen Hemorrhoid Community Church way, way, way out in the Delta. And they didn't know anything. They had been raised by well-intended preachers who just, they just, they just did what they knew. And it's very easy to get aloof and be like, oh, I know more than they do. But I think in this case, 
I think this is a pure, clear indication that Jesus met people where their understanding was. Could Jesus have healed them with a word? Yes, he's done it before in Matthew. But they said, can we just touch the fringe, literally the prayer tassels on his cloak? Jesus could have been in that don't touch me stage. He's still, he's, I'm tired. No, uh, what do you need? All right, go. He could have waved his hand. He could have spoken a word. He didn't do any of that. He met these people as base and as simple as their understanding of what uh, was of him. He met them where they were. So whether you have small children who do not yet understand who Jesus is, but they're trying to grow in it, or you have teenagers that are struggling with their faith and trying to find themselves, or whether you, are, you yourself as a young parent are trying to figure this world out, or you got more seasoning in life, a little more salt and pepper on the temples, I am so grateful that we serve a Jesus that loves us and in our deficiencies, in our lack of understanding in places, meets us where we are. And that's what Jesus does here. That's what he does with these people. He didn't have to do any of that, but he met them anyway because he loves them and he loves you. And that's the story of Matthew 14 this morning.